Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, following the truth wherever it leads, exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality, coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. And welcome once again to another edition of Strange Planet. And if you'd like to dive deeper into this podcast, you might want to consider becoming a premium subscriber. And all you need to do is visit strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. The link is in the episode notes as well. Uh, And there you can uh, subscribe to, well, there's three different monthly tiers or programs to choose from choose the one that's best for you you get all sorts of bonus material and um i thank you for your support a couple of weeks ago i uh, took a deep dive into something i was uh, previously totally unaware of um totally ignorant of and that had to do with the uh, crystals and gemstones i mean i know about a little bit about crystals but i i had no personal experience and i really hadn't done a lot of research and i was introduced to one particular stone called a moldavite. This is it. This is a moldavite. And um, we talked about this last, oh, a couple of weeks ago with Robert Simmons. And for those of you who missed it, we'll uh, we'll give you a bit of an update and uh, a recap on what moldavite is. But we're going to talk about more than just moldavite. We're going to talk about a number of um, stones that are considered the four cor- cornerstones of the alchemy of stones. Azestulite. Rosophia, or sorry, Rosofa, Moldavite, which I just mentioned, and uh, Phenocyte. And uh, we're going to do that right now. As I mentioned, Robert Simmons is back with us. He's been uh, working with crystals and stones for over 35 years. He's the co-founder of Heaven and Earth. That's a company offering gem and jewelry creations for self-healing and spiritual and emotional development. He's the author of several books, including, let me hold these up for those of you who are watching on the Rumble channel, The uh, the Book of Stones, beautiful book, big hefty tome, The Alchemy of Stones. Here it is. as another hefty tome. And uh, this is the one that really kicked it off for me, my introduction to uh, crystals and gemstones, The Book of Moldavite. Robert Simmons, welcome back to Strange Planet. How are you? I am well, Richard. Good to ha- good to be with you again. So, uh, just a recap. This is Moldavite. You sent this to me yeah. several weeks ago, and um, you can't really get it. it. It looks kind of black, but if you hold it up to the light, you can see it's just this incredible emerald uh, green. It's it's beautiful. Uh, once again, how did Moldavite come into being? Moldavite is unique among the gems and minerals in the world in that it didn't grow in the earth. It was formed almost instantaneously in a meteoric crash. It's about 15 million years ago, a huge meteorite about a kilometer in diameter hit in Germany near the border of the Czech Republic. And the explosion of that huge meteorite hitting the ground was powerful, more powerful than all the atom bombs in the world if they went off at once. It went right into the Earth's crust and into the core of the Earth, actually. The bulk of the meteorite went down inside the Earth. But when the explosion happened, the heat was so powerful that it actually vaporized some of the meteor material and some of the earthly rock. And that rock vapor shot up into the stratosphere from the explosive power of that collision. And because the meteorite came in from west to east, the momentum carried this rock gas up into the stratosphere and further to the east, where it eventually, um, in a matter of a few minutes, cooled enough in the stratosphere that the gas became a liquid, just like um, clouds become rain when they condense. Um, And in this case, it was molten glass that was formed from these earthly and heavenly materials combined and sort of what I call an alchemy in the atmosphere. And that rained down 250 kilometers east of where the collision was in what's now the Czech Republic. 
there it sat for 15 million years roughly and it was discovered by people maybe 25,000 years ago and um they almost immediately began fashioning uh statues um arrowheads other tools sharpening tools from moldavite yes they did um uh you know in a practical on the practical side of things moldavite would make a good stone for making a cutting tool or scraping tool because it's glassy like obsidian um but even more importantly to me, when you mentioned statues, the statue that Moldavite is associated with is a figurine called the Venus of Willendorf. And that is the oldest known uh, statue of the, a goddess. Uh, that goes back to Neolithic times before there were any written histories or anything like that. Around 25,000 years, they found this Venus of Willendorf statue. Um, and in the same dig, were amulets that were made of Moldavite. So the inference is that uh, Moldavite was considered a sacred stone even then because they kept it with their sacred statue of the goddess. And uh, it's it's classified as a tektite, right? It's um, so is it technically is it a is it considered it's a tektite, but is it considered a crystal or a gemstone? Well, it's interesting. It's neither. I mean, it's a gem stone because it's valued as a gem and it can be cut and faceted to make gems but in terms of being a crystal no it's it's a it's a funny thing it's something that you would call a liquid crystal even though it's a solid thing and the reason for that is that the heat and intensity and the speed of the formation that created moldavite was takes much less time took much less time it took minutes whereas crystals grow over thousands of years Crystals have a lattice structure that's very regular and geometric. Moldavite is called an amorphous crystal, meaning that its structure is haphazard. It's not regular. It's not in geometric patterns. And yet, um, even so, for those who feel the energy of stones, Moldavite is one of the most powerful stones that anyone has found so far. And one of my guesses as to why has to do with that fiery, intense origin. Um, the last time you were on and later on uh, Coast to Coast, we talked about um, the serendipity, the string of serendipities that led you to um, become familiar with with Moldavite, uh, to adopt it uh, into your jewelry work, and then later, you know, to make it um, part of your business, bringing together you and your your um, your wife, um, serendipity. Um, Talk to me about, um, since we did that show on Coast and people have been writing to you, talking about their experiences with Moldavite. Do you want to share a couple of those with me? Oh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, most commonly when people encounter Moldavite, if they recognize its energy in any way, the most frequent thing is they feel a heat sense of heat or tingling in their body, especially heat or warmth. Some people will get... Uh, uh, what I call the Moldavite flush, where the heat comes up and the heart opens in some way and there's a rush of blood to the face as well as a rush of emotion. Um, and that's a common experience, relatively common with Moldavite. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with that energetic connection. But when I get letters from people about how they came across Moldavite or what they experienced with it, I get wild things. Um, there was a, a letter in the back of the book of Moldavite from a man named Luke who um, could feel the energy, could feel the heat. He really loved his piece of Moldavite when he bought one, you know, a few some years ago. But there was an episode where he took it to the beach at night with a friend and the stone started heating up in his pocket, he wrote me. Um, and around the time that he was checking that out and thinking, wow, that thing has gotten hot. He also then saw a UFO come up out of the ocean. Wow. And this, yeah, and the UFO coming up out of the ocean moved towards the beach. He described it as a sort of an iridescent pink purple thing that had tendrils uh, hanging down from it like a squid or something. Um, and it seemed intelligent because he seemed to 
noticed that it was paying attention to him um, and his friend that was with him was getting totally freaked out and wanted to run away. But Lucas was just too enraptured to do that. So instead, he um, he kind of telepathically or with his mind, he was saying to the um, ship, please don't hurt us. We mean well. Um, you know, uh, what, what do you want to show us or tell us? And um, what then happened was the thing turned electric blue and shot up into the sky, he said and kind of left a vapor trail of iridescent air behind it. So for Lucas, that Moldavite was a sort of a connection to this anomalous event that he thought of as the UFO. So, you know, that's one example. Um, and I have more. <laughs> yeah, please share another one. And then we'll, I'll, uh, I'll tell folks what happened to me on Coast to Coast when, when you and I were talking about Moldavite. Yeah. I got a letter just this week from a woman who was saying that she's always been a meditator and has been into Kundalini yoga and felt the energies move through her body already. But um, she had received um, one of my catalogs from heaven and earth and she hadn't opened it yet, but it was on the floor and she'd just been meditating. She reached down to pick it up and it fell open to the Moldavite pages. And she said that as soon as she saw the image of the Moldavite, the energy started moving crazy intensely in her body um, with a lot of pleasure involved in it. It was both intense and felt good. Um, and she said, I've never had such an activation from a stone before, let alone from a picture of a stone. So to me, that's interesting. It, well, it is interesting because it, it kind of matches with a little bit my experience. Um, this is before you sent me this Moldavite. And so I had the, um, the book in front of me on coast to coast. And while we were talking for two hours in the wee hours, it was, um, what, I guess about three, four o'clock in the morning here. And, uh, I was just kind of flipping through the, the book. And, um, mainly though, I was looking at the, the beautiful pictures on the front cover. I was just kind of staring down at that for the, for most of the two hours, as you and I were talking about Aldivite. And then, um, I would say the last 15 minutes of the show, I would close my eyes periodically and I would get these flashes, very vivid, detailed images from nature. It might be, let's say, sunflowers, and I'd be looking up at the sunflowers and in the background would be just this beautiful azure blue sky. Uh, then I would mm. close my eyes again and I would see, I don't know, maybe the boughs of a cedar tree. Um uh, with the background, maybe a, a, a snowy mountaintop. And I was just getting a series of these. And every time I closed my eyes, wham, I would get hit in, with another one of these beautiful, vivid images from nature. And, and, uh, I, I mentioned it to you just before we signed off on that, uh, episode of coast to coast. And I said, how is this happening? I don't have the Moldavite. I just have the pictures of the Moldavite. And you said, that's all it takes sometimes. I mean, how does that, how does that happen without this physical property in my hand, just the image of it. How is it? How does that work? You know, that's a great question because it leads into kind of the premise behind um, a lot of my work, especially in this alchemy of stone side of things. Um, you know, in my view, the bedrock of reality is consciousness. That's deeper in terms of what conscious, what the world comes out of than material substance is. Um, and if you if you accept that idea or if you just use that as a hypothesis, then you can agree with, like, um, for instance, Carl Jung, who said that reality is symbolic in nature. So that like that's how synchronicities work. You have something that you're thinking about and then something in the outer world appears that matches your thought in some meaningful way. That's a synchronicity. So to me, that's an indicator that. Uh, consciousness is where the is where the, the base of reality is. So then you go to this phenomenon that you experienced. You were looking at a picture of a stone that seems to emanate powerful energies and leads people into all kinds of inner experiences. Well, the picture, the photograph of the stone is a more or less a symbol of the stone in terms of the way it represents the stone. 
So you can interact with the symbol just as readily as you interact with the physical stone because at the underlying level, the, the qualities of the stone that both the physical stone and the image are connecting you to are the same qualities. So I don't know if that makes sense. I hope it does. Yeah, it does. It does. It reminds me, and I may have mentioned this to you on Coast or our last podcast um, in a discussion with um, Patty Greer, who is, uh, we call her the crop circle gal. She, she's made about eight different films on crop circles. Uh, and I think it was Patty. I've done so many shows on crop circles. I think it was Patty who told me that sometimes, uh, you know, people will go into a crop circle and they report having some sort of a healing and, and Patty had mercury poisoning from a, from a filling and uh, which really, you know, impacted her in a horrible way. Uh, and so she got some relief from that lying in a crop circle uh, and then she told me that that people often report getting the same type of effect simply by looking at a picture of a crop circle. So it's kind of the same thing at play, perhaps. Um, it is. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask you, though, because in the book, the book of Moldavite, you, you, I believe in the book, you talk about um, you and your wife taking Moldavite and leaving it in sacred places. Yes. Have you ever placed yes. Moldavite in a crop circle? Oh, we absolutely did. Um, there was a trip to England that we took in 2007, and we went, among other places, to Stonehenge, and we planted Moldavite. We kind of carefully, secretly planted Moldavite at the base of the big megaliths with the idea of uh, energizing the world ley line grid that much more with what Moldavite could contribute because Stonehenge is viewed as one of the ley line centers. Um, so, but we also, on that same trip, we discovered crop circles, meaning there was one day when we were taking a walk and we actually found a crop circle in a wheat field. Um, and that energy of being in that crop circle was so intense that the same impulse we were working from when we put them in the Moldavites at uh, Stonehenge, we thought, well, here's an energy center. We can feel it. So we'll plant a Moldavite here, right at the center of their crop circle. And we did that with two more crop circles that day because we then went looking for more and asking people about them because we felt such an exhilaration and excitement from the energy that was in those circles. So yeah, we tried to intensify that more with the Moldavite also. Uh, what about other sacred places? I don't know, um, Gobekli Tepe, <laughs> the pyramids, Oh, well, there is a piece of Moldavite. This is interesting because Moldavite's got its own fan club, you might say. Like there's a certain segment of the population that knows about Moldavite and loves it and believes it's beneficial for the world. And they, they not only we planted Moldavite in sacred places, but these other people do too. And I got a letter from someone a few months ago who had planted a Moldavite in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid, like you mentioned. Um, so I know that's there. He even sent me a little picture of it. Um, and my wife and I have planted Moldavite um, in the seven sacred pools in Hawaii, um, in the cave of Zeus in Greece, uh, in the temple of the descending God in uh, Tulum, Mexico, um, and a lot of other places that we've been that don't have these fancy names, but we could feel them as sacred sites. Um, so yeah, we do a lot of that with intention. And in fact, we do that not only with Moldavite, but um, one or two other stones. And, and um, what were the intentions, if that's not too personal a question, what were you hoping to achieve and did you achieve it? You know, the intention that we have that is the common denominator of all our work and all my work is the intention for heaven and earth, meaning the spiritual dimension of reality and the physical dimension of reality to join each other and to kind of have a sacred marriage so that heaven and earth are the same place. And, you know, all the things that go with that, like, what do you think about when you think of heaven? You think of joy and love and light and happiness. And for the earth to become a place where that's the predominant energy. That's what I mean by the union of heaven and earth. So when we do our stone planting, it's always carrying that intention to bring more light, more of the heaven qualities to the planet. Um, and so we figure 
that everywhere it can go, um, these everywhere they can go, I should say, these stones um, connect not only with each other, the ones that are all, in all other places around the world, but also through the people that are working with them. So that there's this feeling of creating a kind of net of beneficial energy and light and, and love um, through the human species and also through the earth. Because I think the earth is a being and a conscious being and human beings and earth. Um, when heaven and earth happens, human beings and earth will also be aware of each other consciously and be in union. Robert, we'll take a quick time out, come back, and we'll talk about um, the four cornerstones of the alchemy of stones, including Moldavite. Back with more in a minute. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? You're listening to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And we're back with Robert Simmons. He's been working with crystals and stones for over 35 years. The author of the Book of Moldavite, Starborn Stone of Transformation, The Alchemy of Stones, co-creating with crystals, minerals, and gemstones for healing and transformation, and the Book of Stones, who they are and what they teach. Who? Who they are. That's interesting when referring to stones and gemstones as who rather than what. Explain. Well, that's also at the core of my work with stones. When I started, I thought of stones like most people who are at all into crystals begin by thinking about them. I think about them as objects that have qualities like a vitamin will have a quality that will be good for a different part of your body. So people look at stones first, usually as objects, and what can it do for me? But um, later, as I worked more deeply with stones and meditated with them, and with the suggestion of a friend, um, I began experimenting with viewing them as beings. Um, and so, you know, because what is a being? It's a constellation of consciousness. And the energies of the stones that we feel, those of us who are able to feel them or to perceive them um, are basically constellations of consciousness. And it's an interesting thing. If, if you, if you put your intention, if you imagine, if you let yourself imagine that the stone that you're holding and the energy you're feeling may come from a being, and then you invite the being of the stone to enter your, let's say what I always do is enter my heart. Then I look in my heart, I sort of pay attention to my heart, and I often will see a being in like a human form because the consciousness behind the stone, as I view it, is able to sort of perceive our awareness and give, our, give itself an image that we can understand through looking inwardly at it that expresses its qualities. So the thing I'm saying is that the stones should be looked at the same way we look at angels. Angels are like the divine messengers from God in the tradition, religious traditions. I view the stones as the divine messengers of the soul of the earth. So messengers like this, they're beings. They have, uh, inner, they have um, information or energy to convey to us, and they very faithfully do it. The angels from God do that. The angels from the earth do that in the way I describe it. And animating the stones and giving yourself the opportunity to let the imagination of them become richer is what often seeing them as beings offers. Oh, I, uh, I neglected to mention, um, since I received my Moldavite, I started intermittent fasting. Um, and uh, I, had, I had attempted intermittent fasting several years ago, and I had some success, and then I sort of fell off the wagon with the corn chips and <laughs> all the other things I shouldn't be eating. Um, and uh, I hadn't thought about it again for a couple of years. And then serendipity, I don't know. But once I, as soon as I received the Moldavite, I'd say within a couple of days, I started back with my intermittent fasting, uh, which is 18 hours of fasting. And then you have a six hour window to eat. And um, the weight is not coming off quite as quickly as it did, but I'm a couple of years older. So that may have something to do with it as well. However, that may be one of the, uh, that may be one of the, uh, the attributes of uh, of multivite, right? I mean, you've experienced that. It it brings about sometimes dramatic 
change in people's lives. Yes, emulsified is really well known for accelerating the evolution of your spiritual or even your physical life towards what's most beneficial. Um, and I can say that in my own experience with Moldavite, before I had any opinions about it at all, when I had the stone, I immediately, like you, um, changed my eating habits. I started, I became a vegetarian. I stopped eating sugar. Um, I also stopped drinking alcohol. And it was all just spontaneous. It was what I felt like doing all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere. Um, and lots of people report that in different expressions that you know different ways in which their life starts getting better and they just feel like doing it so i i carry my moldavite uh, around in my pocket i go for a, a three or four mile walk um five days a week lately the mighty aphrodite was was having some trouble sleeping so she tried sleeping with under her pillow and last night she had she said one of the best sleeps she's had in quite a while uh but how are we supposed to use it i tend to just kind of walk around with it and rub it i don't know what what am i supposed to do with it how do i work with it well, you're doing the right thing right off the bat spontaneously, because in my view, what goes on with Moldavite and any stone, I don't want to just confine it to Moldavite, is that, you know, it, it's emanating its energy pattern. And you have an energy pattern in your own subtle body. You have an energy body. So naturally, when you, when you bring those two things together, there's a kind of an integration of energies that happens. And that integration of energies means your own pattern is different. And as long as you surround yourself with beneficial things that have beneficial energies, you're going to improve your pattern. So that's what the whole theory behind the alchemy of stones and um, working with stones generally is, in my view. You know, part of it is that um, enhancement of our own energies. Um, so walking around with it is a great way. When you want to go deeper, you meditate with the stone. You hold the stone in meditation um, what I do, I always begin the meditation by holding the stone near my heart. And I do as I inhale, I invite the stone into my heart. I even picture it in my heart. And then on the exhale, I sort of offer myself in a kind of a friendship gesture to the being of the stone. And I just repeat that circulation. And that creates a feedback loop between myself and the, what I call the being of the stone. So that's when more of the energy can... Um, express itself with us and to us and also you can even get to the place of interacting so you can use it for that in meditation you can also do things like um, healing like doing a healing layout on the body with not just one stone but a number of different stones that where you're sort of created a recipe for what qualities you want to bring in so there's a few things that you can do with stones all right, so let's talk about the four cornerstones of the alchemy of stones. Um, first of all, when we're talking about alchemy, we're talking about, I guess, metaphorically, we're not talking about turning lead into gold as they, they attempted in the Middle Ages. We're talking about um, metamorphosis or transformation um, on a spiritual level, perhaps on a physical level, on a, an emotional level. Is that about it? Right. Right. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's, I, I got myself, I became very uh, excited about alchemy when I started reading into it. And I was reading Carl Jung's books on alchemy, which are some of the best for the psychology and the spiritual aspect of alchemy. The turning lead into gold for the spiritual alchemist was just a symbolic metaphor. Mm -hmm. It was like the way you start the work, you yourself are like lead. You're imperfect, you're polluted, you're, you know, you've got a lot of growing to do to become refined and at the culmination of the alchemical inner work you become like gold you're pure you're incorruptible you have that golden energy about you so that's what the alchemists believed and that was the reason for that metaphor but the other aspect of it was is the goal of alchemy was the creation of a stone funnily enough and they called it the philosopher's stone and what is the philosopher's stone as i best understand it um, it is the spiritualization of the material. So it means that joining of heaven and earth I talked about. Um, and in the alchemist, when that happens within you, that's the transformation of the self where um, your ego becomes um, overshadowed by your deeper, truer self. You might say your soul self. 
And at that place, then you you become gold because the soul self is the pure self that's the most connected to the divine and expresses the divine directly through you. A mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about the four cornerstones, you you talk about four um, crystals or gemstones in particular. Uh, Azestulite? Is it Rosafa? Yes. Rosafa? Rosofa? Rosafa. You were right the first time, Rosophia. Rosophia. And uh, Moldavite is in there. And then is it Phenocyte? Phenocyte, yes. Phenocyte. All right. Um, yeah. So let's talk about azestulite. As I understand it, this is a type of quartz. Yes, azestulite is a quartz. And I've got a couple of pieces for those who can see it. Um, there's a white one and a transparent one here. Um, azestulite. Um, in the chemical level is just quartz. There's nothing unusual about it. It's silicon dioxide. But azestulite is a quartz that carries a specific energy signature. And the lore about azestulite, which I, my own uh, experience was part of, is that um, there are beings in the case of this stone that are angelic beings that um, activated azestulite to carry the frequency or the divine energy that they were serving, which they called the nameless light of the great central sun. So that's a big story that I won't probably have time for you to ask me about in detail, but um, people's experience when they hold one of these, and I can tell the difference by feel between azestulite and a piece of regular quartz, when they hold an azestulite, even naive people who have never touched it before, what they often experienced is light coming into their bodies from above. It's as though there's this, you know, again, heavenly light that kind of descends and they feel it and see it inwardly if they have their eyes closed and hold the stone to their heart. Um, so that, you know, that's that nameless light as far as I'm concerned. And again, the scientific side of me does a lot of this sort of trying it out for people that don't know about it. I have them hold it, but I don't tell them what to expect. And then I hear what they have to say. And, you know, this corroboration has happened many, many times. The stone of light, I guess it's known as, right? The stone of light. That yeah. According to legend, it helps you communicate with other dimensions. Is that true? Um, yes. I mean, the, 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 Azestulite is primarily this connection with the light that comes through the beings that they are called the Azez from what they say is the great central sun, which is another way of saying the spiritual light that's at the center of everything. Um, so it's interdimensional in that sense, because that's at a higher level. Um, the stone that is most about interdimensional traveling and being able to go into all these different inner worlds and, experienced beings on other in other dimensions and places that's the phenakite or phenocyte ah phenakite. Um, because that one is the one that stimulates yeah that's the one that stimulates the third eye um third eye being our place of inner vision and so through the awakened third eye that's how we find these what look like when you're doing it they look like inner corridors of light that you can move your attention through and find these other domains, these other worlds, and you know, interact with beings there and all that kind of stuff. It's the reason it's one of the four cornerstones because it's the vision stone. Zestulite's the light stone. Moldavite's the transformation stone. And the Rosophia that we haven't looked at yet or talked about yet, but that's the stone that I associate with um, the soul of the world, which the alchemist named Sophia. Just to bring it back around to the alchemy again. Yes. Sophia means wisdom. And this is, Richard, this is what I wanted to say to you a while ago. When you were getting the visions while you looked at the pictures of Moldavite back on the Coast to Coast program, what came to me is every one of those visions was a beautiful nature, a beautiful image of the harmony and beauty of the world itself, of the earth, um, of the living qualities of the earth, you might say. And to me, that's a message or that's that is perceiving the soul of the world, perceiving what the alchemist called Sophia. Um, and the work of the alchemist and my work, too, the intention was to co-create 
this union of heaven and earth with the soul of the world. And in so doing, to enlighten ourselves and to help her awaken fully to her nature. You know, their whole story was nature was evolving towards illumination, but they wanted to speed things up. And they felt like by aligning their intention and purity of their intention with the world, they could help the earth awaken. And that was the creation of the Philosopher's Stone, where the whole earth became fully spiritualized and awake. So if you've got the four, the four stones, Azestulite, Rosophia, Moldavite, and Fenakite, um, do you work with them all? Should you have them all around you simultaneously? I mean, is it possible to overdo it? Uh, can their energies, their vibrations, I don't know, can they, can they clash, work at cross purposes? Um. So, I mean, I've always believed that if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. So I've done, I've had that sort of as a guiding or a, <laughs> that's been my impulse. Um, in short, it's say it in short, these four stones harmonize with each other really, really well. That's one of the reasons why I picked them as the four cornerstones. Um, you don't need to use them all together, but it's also quite nice when you do. Just before the show, I was holding all four of them and doing a little meditation to ask that I be uh, clear and articulate and put out the best information I could when we talked. And the feeling of holding those four stones, it was really nice. It was very much of a richness uh, that kind of filled up my chest and then kind of went up into my head. So I, they're good to get together and you can also use each of them separately if you're going to focus on what each one of them is strong in. When you um, buy some jewelry or when you're working with these stones to make jewelry, uh, you're polishing them or carving them or cutting them. Does that affect the, the energy, the vibrational field? Can it enhance it? Can it diminish it? I think in some ways, yes, you can, you can, uh, create different focuses or with different kinds of shapes and stones. For example, if you cut and fasten a moldavite into a round gem, what it feels like when you hold it is instead of a kind of all directional emanation of energy, it's like a laser focus through the pointed tip of the gem. Um, and uh, I don't have one right here with me, but you can also take a stone like a zestulite that is um, just a rough rock and cut it into a long slender point. Uh, they call those uh, like a wand um, and it imitates the natural shape of a crystal, you know, the long sides and the point. And what you get from that again is a linear focusing of the energy of the stone. So when you use one of those, I would use it like to activate a chakra because the energy all goes through the crystal right throughout the point. Um, but on the other side of it, if you have a sphere, then you're filling up a room or whatever space it's in with a sort of omnidirectional emanation. So in that sense, it does make a difference what shape it's in. Um, and I wouldn't want people to get too hung up on it because the energy signature of every stone is still the same. It's still as estulite, it's still phenocide, but, um, you can do those modifications that change the way the energy flows. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Uh, just getting back to Zestulite for a moment, because when you held that up, uh, it reminded me of those uh, crystal skulls they they found in Mesoamerica. Um, are the are the crystal skulls carved from Zestulite? Do you know? Um, I don't think they are. I have been around a number of the crystal skulls, and it's kind of an aside, but I think it might be interesting. I've yeah. had a couple of really powerful paranormal experiences in the presence of these crystal skulls. Um, some years ago, I saw the Mitchell Hedges crystal skull. I visited it on my birthday. It's full size, transparent, beautiful skull with a movable jaw even. Um, and that one 
seemed as I sat with it sitting on the coffee table. The little old lady who owned it just kept brought it out and put it on the coffee table. Um, it felt like it was beaming love. And I was surprised by that because I thought of these skulls as kind of more ominous and more intense than that. But it was just a, a, a room full of love. And I saw another one called Shanara some years later. And I had been doing some teaching. And it was the end of my workshop. And I, the man who had brought it invited me to sit with it in this little booth that he had. So I did. And I was so tired. I didn't think anything was going to happen. But in, I was wrong. Um, as I sat and looked at it, all of a sudden, a whole story about a past life of mine opened up. And I saw this whole past life in Central America where that skull had been unfolding to my inner sight like a, like a movie. So there's a lot of power in some of those skulls. And I think it's not an accident that the ancients who created them sort of knew to do that. Um, I spoke recently with a gentleman uh, about pyramids and not just the, the pyramids of Giza, but the construction of pyramids using the golden ratio. And there's something called a Russian pyramid. Um, and uh, I'm wondering if you were to construct one of these Russian pyramids, a small scale, uh, and people you know who are old enough of a certain vintage will remember pyramid power from the early 1970s. That was the big thing, people walking around with pyramids. and But if you were to construct a, a, one of these pyramids with one of these crystals, whether it's azestulite or whether it's moldavite, what do you think would happen? Well, I even can tell you that I did do that. And um, there was I made some very big pyramids uh, at one of my workshops, an Alchemy of Stones workshop in 2016. They were 10 feet on a side. And they were uh, copper tubes. They were made at the same ratio as the Great Pyramid. Um, and what we did, what I did was filled them up. The pipes got filled up with stones. And we did four different recipes. One was all filled with stones of grounding and protection. One was all filled with healing stones. One was filled with love energy stones. And one was filled with what I called ascension energy stones, which was mostly azestulite. And we had 180 people at that big workshop. So during the time they would move around on the breaks and people would sit under these different pyramids and feel what each different one felt like. And not only did the pyramid shape create a really powerful environment that they could sit in and really get saturated in the stone energies that would compose the pyramids, but we also found that um, we could, we did even activate water inside each pyramid. And then the waters also, we made some what you call stone elixirs, um, which then carried the energies of love, protection, healing, and ascension uh, in, the, in the essences that we made too. Oh, so sure. pyramid powers for real, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, what would you suggest um, for someone who's on, I'm on the radio. Uh, I rely on a recall ability. I need to remember certain words and use them in the right places. Um, I need clarity of mind. Uh, is there a particular crystal or stone that you would recommend for someone like me? Sure. Sure. I mean, for clarity of mind, there's two that are well known for that. One is uh, citrine. It's a yellow quartz. And one is fluorite which is a multicolored stone that's a completely different mineral. Um, fluoride kind of works like a psychic vacuum cleaner to clear away the debris in your field or in your thoughts. Um, citrine is that thing that helps with focus uh, and ability to, to um, access everything that's in your inner library. And then if you want to talk about the expression and eloquence that you would also want to bring out in your, in your work, um, a stone like Larimar, um, aquamarine, um, or even euclase, those are all light blue stones. Light blue uh, color goes with the throat chakra, which is where our communication comes from. And if you had that with you, then presumably, according to me anyway, you'd get an enhanced access to um, eloquence. 
All right. I got to get me some of those stones. <laughs> um, what about abundance? <laughs> <laughs> I need all the help I can get sometimes. Uh, what about abundance? If someone wants to attract abundance in whatever form that might be. Well, one of the stones that I've used to attract abundance is Moldavite. Um, I, I told you on one of our other talk conversations that um, early days when we were just starting our business, my wife and I were always on Fridays, we were writing checks to cover by Monday to pay our bills. And one week she was saying, I'm tired of that. I want to get to where we don't need to make things uh, that tight. So she taped a piece of Moldavite, a little thin one into the checkbook. And from then on, we never had to write one of those checks again. We were always, we, we always we had more and we always had more ever since then. So that's an abundant stone. And then in, in tradition, um, uh, emerald and aventurine, which is a green quartz, are thought of as abundant stones. And uh, in India, um, yellow sapphire is thought of an, as an abundant stone. In the uh, Ayurvedic tradition in India, they view that as a wealth creating stone. Uh, and, and finally, what about, uh, for good health or let's say you're, you're, you're sick, you're fighting a, a disease. What, uh, what stones would be of benefit? Um, you know, that's a big question. And I like that question because it opens a lot up. Um, one thing I'll guess say first is, you know, the stones are just emanating their energies and when we invite them more comes because I view them as the energy is always some sort of an variation of love energy, which means that love never forces itself on you. It always comes when it's invited. It's a free gift. So you need to invite the energy for healing with any stone you're working with. And then you can choose what stones you want to heal different conditions with um, by looking in a book like the Book of Stones or some of my other books, because there's this huge variety of what they focus on, just like there's no one medicine that is good for all ailments. Um, so that's one thing. But then as an all-purpose healing stone, which is maybe where your question mm -hmm. originates from, there's one called Helorite, which is a, a light green uh, serpentine that is my favorite for sort of general health. To me, it seems to resonate with the pattern of well-being that is our natural pattern. And so when you get exposed to that vibration, you tend to resonate with it and it tends to pull in your natural pattern of well-being. So there's that one, and there's another one called Healer's Gold, um, which is a black and yellow um, stone that has uh, magnetite and pyrite in it. That's a balancer of your field and your meridian system, um, like what the acupuncturists work with. Um, Healer's Gold is a balancer for that system. If you had to pick one stone, uh, from either the Book of Stones or the uh, the Alchemy of Stones, one stone that uh, perhaps is maybe overlooked by people, least understood, maybe it has some remarkable quality that people might not even be aware of. What would you What would you uh, say? Well, there's two that I'm working with a lot right now, and the reason I hadn't worked with them before is they're quite rare. But um, there's been a big find of both of them in uh, South America just recently. So one of them is Vivianite. And again, I don't have it right with me, but it's a blue green crystal and it tends to come in long, skinny, tapered shapes. Um, and that stone I find um, is a good stone for deep inner work. Like if you want to sort of, um, if you want to meditate and get deep into meditation, if you want to discover your true nature in meditation, like the Buddhists always try to point to, um, Vivianite seems to really facilitate that. And it's a, it creates a lovely feeling in the heart when I meditate with that one. Um, and the other one I'll mention is one called Euclase. I mentioned that a minute ago for the throat. Yes. Um, but the other thing, the other thing about Euclase, it's a, it's a light blue stone or sometimes crystalline with blue. Um, it creates a state of reverence. Like when I hold that euclase, it, it stimulates the just above my heart in this place that kind of opens up when I feel the energy there. And I'm filled with the sense of being present in this, in the presence of something holy. Um, so it 
that to me, of course, is to be sought after, you know, there's not much better than feeling in that presence. Um, and Euclid is taking me there. So I think both of those are quite overlooked because they haven't been around and so they haven't become popular. But I'm talking about them and writing about them both right now because I think they're important. Maybe give me uh, an, I don't know, an experiment tonight that I could try with my, my Moldavite. Let's say I want to have, um, I don't know, really lucid, lucid dreams or vivid dreams, not lucid dreams. That's an entirely different thing, but a vivid, really vivid dreams. And I want to dream a lot. What should I do? Oh, well, I've got a great recipe for that. You just, you take a Band-Aid or a piece of adhesive tape and you tape that Moldavite up to your forehead and go to sleep with it on your forehead. Um, I have, I've done this for 35 years. I've recommended it to people because I tried it on myself and it gave me, I was, I mean, I was dreaming my brains out um, to the point where at early hours of the morning, I would have to take the thing off just so I could sleep without dreams. Um, so I've never had anybody say that it didn't have that effect when I had, when they did that. So if you want to really activate your dream life and you're willing to put a piece of Moldavite up there, uh, I can promise you that'll happen. All right. I'm going to try it. It's a deal. Okay. Thank you. Robert Simmons is the author of the book of stones, the book of Moldavite, the alchemy of stones, and uh, the website is heavenandearthjewelry.com. It's in the episode notes. Just click on the link. Oh, the stones of the new consciousness. We should also mention that one as well. Robert, a great delight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. It's a real pleasure to get to share this with you and kind of express this enthusiasm I have for so. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. 